the last number of weeks, uh, we've been dealing with the subject of encountering God. What does it look like? And uh, before we started, we had to kind of work through who this God is we say we believe in. And so we began with, you got to understand what God's opinion is of us first. So that was a great, I think we took two weeks on that one. And then what's God's reaction to certain individuals? There's a lot of great stories where God reacts and that can start to build a pattern of trust if we see the good news in God's reactions. It's not as scary as we thought. Then we started taking a look at what people's reactions were to God. And a couple weeks ago, we took a look at David and his transparency, his honesty of venting to God, and and God was okay with it. It was a very powerful um, way to look at God is approachable. He's safe enough to approach. And then, of course, last week we talked about Paul and his encounter on the Damascus Road and how it affected him brutal change, it almost, it, well, pretty much instantaneous. And then he went to hiding for about three, three years, studying, learning, revealing, growing, being stretched. And uh, boy, three years. Imagine being sent off for three years for a deep, intense theological mind change. The man who spent his lifetime entrenched in the law and the rules of how to and boy if you had the law you don't have to think you just follow the rules it's easier no emotions involved no thinking involved check your brain at the door well under the new covenant we're under grace we're under the new covenant we're under the law of love and the life of christ and we need to learn to live from him and the scriptures point to who he is it's been good so the context why is this important? Because I think many, many individuals have had a, a false picture of who they think God is. We've been sold many stories. I grew up in a very churched family, German Baptist, strict, strict. I got a double whammy. So in that context, um, I was given some key foundations that were very helpful. But how it was filtered to me, it was presented to me of this schizophrenic God multiple personalities, and I could not figure it out. Because the God of the New Testament, Jesus, oh my goodness, yeah, he's, he's okay. He's the good cop. But huh, Father, Old Testament, he's the bad cop. You run from him. And it was, it was scary. So I think this, this key thing of fixing our perspective of what our encounters with God can look like, this is the big one. Jesus said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. We are one. I think this is probably the greatest declaration that Jesus gives, communicating union, communicating divinity, and communicating, if you've had a wrong picture of my father, it just got corrected. That is the point in history. It's from there we now look at the rest of Scripture. And that could bring up a lot more questions if you've grown up in the church. So that part was really important to have that as a foundation. Jesus is God and creator. Now, this was kind of fun as a foundation because the Persian church, the Iranian church I spoke to last week, um, this is a really, really, really big one in the Muslim faith. They always see Jesus as a prophet, a teacher, but not one with God, let alone the creator. God created through Christ. That's big. But you got to know this in order to have an authentic encounter with the real God, not the false one that doesn't even exist, but we've been told about him. Another foundation is Christ holds all things, everything together. This is big. 
Because I, was, I grew up in a, a mindset of God's out there and distant from us. And we have to do certain things to get close to God. And we have all these great steps of how to get closer to God. And yet, he's actually holding us together. Everything and everyone. The chair, you, me, regardless of what you believe, he still holds you together. That's a big, big foundation. Peter had a vision of food. He had a big thing uh, drop down his face and God said, eat. And he said, heck no, I ain't eating. Uh, I, don't, I can't understand how he would argue with God. I just, something's kind of funny about that. Either he had a really good comfort level with his relationship, but um, God gives him this unclean food. And basically what he ends up saying later he tells the people he has to go speak to, God has shown me that I am not to call anyone unclean or unholy. That's huge. I'll let you wrestle with that one. Uh-oh. Whew, good. Uh, are we having trouble back there? All right. I like control. Uh, just kidding. So Jesus comes to correct the image to correct the image people had of the Father. That's what this series is about. Revisiting who is God, who is the Father, and it's good news. Uh, we've done this through some stories, and today's story will probably help you with that, and we're going to dig into this one, the Samaritan woman at the well. What if her story has been misunderstood, misshared, and misrepresented? And I'm going to do a shout-out to Lorinda here in the front row. Uh, this is her fault um, that... Uh, she kind of said, hey, what if that story isn't what you thought? I went, yeah, I've been preaching for 28 years. I know exactly what it's about. <laughs> so the last number of weeks, I've been scouring and reading, and I tell you, what I'm hoping to share with you today, I can't unsee anymore. And here's what this means for me. My perspective has to stay open. My teachability has to be an open palm where God can remove or add whatever he wants. Instead of me having a locked in, this is what it means. That's what this text or this story means. God's going, yeah, I'm so much bigger than your theology. So much better than your doctrine and the lens you've been taught. My love is far greater than you can possibly understand and I'm going to stretch you. If you're willing, keep your hand open. And the story kind of did that. And I went, oh, now that I see it, it's like, good night. Oh, no kidding. I see why. You'll, we'll get there. Okay, I'm starting to rush ahead. So if we've understood her story, the woman at the well, incorrectly, personally, this is big. What if your story has been misunderstood, misshared, misrepresented, or you have a mis you misinterpreted your own story? There is hope, love, and grace. Many of us are asking the big question, who am I? What is my purpose? And I tell you, it's connected to who God is holding you together. This is big. So let's, let's take a look at this story. And I really hope I can bring this out. In fact, let, it's going to be a bit scatterbrained because that's the way my notes are, and I can't help it today. So that's just the way it is. Okay, before I read this text... I want to give you a quick background on the Samaritan. And I know you guys are just thrilled with biblical history and the little nuances and all that stuff. You just keep begging for more. I know it. Fine. But this is important. 
Because this also has to do with a misunderstanding that we have had about Samaritans. We're told they're, they're like a, the bad guys. They're, like, they're not really Jews. They're ostracized. They're crap disturbers. They challenge everything. You know, they're inbred. Jews and Gentiles. And so we have such a negative picture of who Samaritans are. Is that true? Have, have we all heard the Samaritans basically are not as good as Jews. They're looked down upon. Obviously, the Jews can't stand them. And there's, there's a lot of judgment here. Yes? I've, I've seen that. Okay. What if it's just one perspective and there's another perspective that may help us see the Samaritans a little bit better? Samaritans called themselves B'nai Israel, or sons of Israel. They still identified as Israel. They believed themselves to be the preservers of the original religion of ancient Israel. The name Samaritans literally, uh, from Hebrew, means the keepers, in brackets, of original laws and traditions. They're very, very serious about their faith. In fact, you can call them like... You ever see brothers or sisters, mostly sisters, fight? You know, they, they kind of have sibling rivalry and one's trying to outdo the other one and nobody will listen to the other one. Not that the Lane Smiths, they're perfect. They never ever have fights. Right, girls? Right. I've been on a mission strip with you. I don't think so. <laughs> so in a sense, the Samaritans are like uh, siblings of the Jews. They really are. But when you see this, you'll, you'll see where this is coming from. Samaritans believe the center of Israel's worship ought not to have been Mount Zion, but rather Mount Gerizim. Great name. They argued that this was the site of the first Israelite sacrifice in the land from Deuteronomy 27.4, and that it continued to be the center of sacrificial activity of Israel's patriarchs. This was the place where blessings were pronounced by ancient Israelites. Samaritans believed that Bethel, Jacob, Mount Moriah, Abraham, and Mount Gerizim were the same place. Number four, the Samaritans essentially had a fourfold creed. One God, one prophet, one book, one place. They're pretty serious so far. You didn't know this. I thought they were loosey-goosey with their theology. Oh my goodness, quite the opposite is what I'm finding out. Number five, Samaritans believed that people who called themselves Jews, Judea-centered believers in Israel's God, had taken the wrong path in their religious practice by importing novelties into the land during the return of the Babylonian exile. It sounds like a, the first denominational split. <laughs> first church split. They're wrong, we're right. That's exactly what's happening here. And this part's really cool. Samaritans were theologically and ethnically mixed group of people. The Samaritans are genetically related to the remnants of the northern tribes. So if you know your biblical history, many won't, but this is part of true uh, Israeli history. There were remnants of the northern tribes who left the land after the Assyrian exile. They intermarried with Gentiles who were relocated uh, to Samaria by the Assyrian emperor. This act of dispossession and transfer from their home homeland was done in a strategic attempt to destroy the people's identity and prevent any potential future for revolt. Huh. It was intentional to mess with their identity. Huh. I wonder if our world's in the same mess. 
struggling with our own identity. Who are we? Who are we in Christ? This is big. Samaritans were hungry people. We're going to find that out in a few minutes. So this woman, I want to read this quote. Again, this is from several blogs that I've had. I did not come up with all this. I'm not that smart. But everybody can research. The stuff's there. It's available. Listen to this. The Samaritan woman, the woman at the well. She's theologically astute, politically aware, clearly respected in her community, and feisty. Traditional Christian interpretation, however, has turned her into a lazy, slutty sinner, an outcast in her community. That's the traditional picture. The traditional interpretation would say the Samaritan woman at the well was no angel. And this, comes, this, this next text comes from a, another website that if you were to Google Samaritan or woman at the well, this pops up. So the first impression people get is the negative one. The Samaritan woman was no angel. Mixed up with a wrong crowd, this poor woman from Samaria was quite a, has quite a reputation. She had been married five times and was living in sin with a man who wasn't her husband. Through, though her story come, through her story comes the lesson that people sh- shouldn't live by carnal pleasure. Jesus has a lengthy but candid dialogue with her. He makes her understand that she needs to confess her sins and change her life before she can obtain this life-giving water, grace. That's the traditional interpretation and presentation of that story. I want to present to you a more hope-filled, grace-filled presentation of this story. I want you to see this woman for who she, well, I think who she really was. Because some of the questions that I've had to face, I never had to deal with the question. But this research, thanks, Lorinda, had forced me to ask more and more questions. Wait a minute, why didn't I question that before? Well, of course, that seems really obvious. I hope this will give you insight, first of all, to become more teachable, to see another lens, whether this one's correct or not. Remember, we're, we're going to learn and grow together. The Holy Spirit is your teacher. This is where, what I'm seeing, and hopefully I can present it to you effectively. Let's begin with the actual story. John chapter 4, I'm going to try and read the whole thing through, but I may rabbit trail, which is something I never do. John chapter 4, reading from the Passion Translation. Soon the news reached the Jewish religious leaders, known as the Pharisees, that Jesus was drawing greater crowds of followers coming to be baptized than John. Although Jesus didn't baptize, but had his disciples baptize the people. Jesus heard what was being said and abruptly left Judea and returned to the province of Galilee and had to pass through Samaritan territory. There's clearly, Samaria is right smack between the two on the map when you look. There's, I think it's an extra three days to get around, but it's a lot faster straight through. So Jesus does this. Jesus arrived at the Samaritan village of Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph long ago. Wearied by his long journey, he sat on the edge of Jacob's well. He sent his disciples into the village to buy food, for it was already afternoon. Soon, a Samaritan woman came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink of water. Surprised, she said, why would a Jewish man ask a Samaritan woman for a drink of water? 
Jesus replied, probably with a sly little grin on the side of his face, here, here we go. <laughs> I can just see it. Not that he did, I just don't know, but I would. If you only knew who I am and the gift that God wants to give you, you'd ask me for a drink and I would give you living water. The woman replied, but sir, you don't even have a bucket and this well's very deep. So where do you find this living water? Do you really think that you're greater than our ancestor Jacob who dug this well and drank from it himself along with his children and livestock? She's pulling rank. You caught that. She's, she's challenging this person in front of her. Who do you think you are? I know who I am, at least my connection, and this is sacred place. Jesus answered, if you drink from Jacob's well, you'll be thirsty again and again. But if anyone drinks the living water I give them, they will never thirst again and will be forever satisfied. For when you drink the water I give you, it becomes a gushing fountain of the Holy Spirit, springing up and flooding you with endless life. The woman replied, let me drink that water so I'll never be thirsty again and won't have to come back here to draw water. Jesus said, go get your husband and bring him back here. But I'm not married, the woman answered. Hmm, that's true, Jesus said, for you've been married five times and now you're living with a man who is not your husband. You have told the truth. Did you see the switch? The topic got changed suddenly. They're talking about water and he says, go get your husband. What was that? We'll get to it. Verse 19, the woman said, you must be a prophet. So tell me this, why do our fathers worship God here on this nearby mountain, but your people teach that Jerusalem is the place where we must, we must worship, which is right. Again, it's about who's right and who's wrong. We don't ever do that, do we? Jesus responded, believe me, dear woman, the time has come when you won't worship the Father on a mountain, nor in Jerusalem, but in your heart. Your people don't really know the one they worship. The Jews worship out of experience, for it's from the Jews that salvation is made available, a.k.a. Jesus. From here on, worshiping the Father is not a matter of the right place, but with the right heart. For God is spirit and he longs to have sincere worshipers who worship and adore him in the realm of spirit and truth. Whew. This is a pretty intense conversation. The woman said, this is all so confusing. But I do know that the anointed one is coming, the true Messiah. And when he comes, he'll tell us everything we need to know. Jesus, smirking probably again, said to her, you don't have to wait any longer. The anointed one is here speaking with you. I am the one you are looking for. Okay, I wonder what she felt at the moment. Hmm, what would you feel? Well, in today's culture, we'd say, cuckoo, and move on. But something was going on here. 
at that moment, wrecking the mood, in my mind, the disciples returned and were stunned to see Jesus speaking with the Samaritan woman. Yet not one of them dared to ask him why or what are they discussing. All at once, the woman dropped her water jar and ran off to the village and told everyone. Now, just picture this for a minute. The disciples happened to come. Jesus just said, I'm the one. She hears this, ah, drops her jar. These guys are coming from over here. All they see is this woman going, ah, drops the jar, taking off. And what did he say to her? Oh, man. Like, we missed it. <laughs> no, you can't see that? I can. Ah, come and meet a man, is what she says to her village. Meet a man at the well who told me everything I ever done. He could be the anointed one that we've been waiting for. Hearing this, the people came streaming out of the village to go see Jesus. Then the disciples began to insist that Jesus eat some food. I think this is in between the people coming. Insist that Jesus eats some of the food they brought back from the village, saying, Teacher, you must eat something. But Jesus told him, <laughs> Don't worry about me. I've eaten a meal you don't know anything about. <laughs> he, he is speaking of the spiritual food, the energy of the Spirit of God in him is his food and sustenance. And he was experiencing oneness with his Father and the joy of connecting with somebody who is hearing the gospel and getting it. That is unbelievable food. Last Sunday night, I had so much fun at the Persian church. They offered me some pizza at the end. I said, I just can't eat. I'm too excited right now. And then I, as I was going through this week, I went, I get that. <laughs> you know, Like, honestly, Jesus was sharing something that's far deeper that I want to experience far more often, that he is my food. I'd lose some weight, too. It would be all right. But either way, the point is my source is not what I can prepare, but rather the one who dwells in me. That is something we need to learn. First, recognize Christ in us. Learn to hear his voice. And learn to respond through spiritual intimacy. That's what we're called to. Relationship. Knowing, because God knows out of that relationship, much will be done. You'll be doing many things, but it begins from relationship, from the source. Puzzled by this, the disciples began to discuss among themselves, did somebody bring him a slice of pizza? Did somebody bring him food? Where did he get his meal? Then Jesus spoke up and said, my food is to be doing the will of him who sent me and bring it to completion. That's a big line. My food is to be doing the will of him who sent me. As the crowds emerged from the village, Jesus said to his disciples, why would, why would you say the harvest is another four months away? Look at all the people coming. Now is the harvest time, for their hearts are like vast fields of ripened grain, ready for a spiritual harvest. And everyone who reaps these souls for eternal life will receive a reward. Those who plant spiritual seeds and those who reap the harvest will celebrate together with great joy. And this confirms the saying, One sows the seed, another reaps the harvest. I have sent you out to harvest a field that you haven't planted. 
where many others have labored long and hard before you. And now you are privileged to profit from their labors and reap a harvest. The big famous church line in evangelism and church growth is go and make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and teach them to do all that I've commanded. That's been twisted into this thing of you have to go make converts. Go make converts of all people around you. You're not called to make converts. You're called to make disciples. And not necessarily from scratch. Only from those who are ready, who are hungry. And God may put you in connection with people. Some, some people here are gifted to help people become hungry. And then they're ready to be discipled. Each person has a different gift. The whole body works together. It's powerful. But it is a really cool story here. So there were many from the Samaritan village who became believers in Jesus because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. Then they begged Jesus to stay with them. So he stayed there for two days, resulting in many more coming to faith in him because of his teaching. Then the Samaritan said to the woman, We no longer believe just because of what you told us, but we've heard him ourselves and are convinced that he really is the true savior of the world. This woman. I think we can take a look at a couple of elements to the story and revisit our interpretation of what has just happened. Taking the traditional perspective, challenging it, and flipping it on its head and go, wait a minute, here's a better way to see some of this stuff. So, the woman's not single, right? We got that? Pretty clear? Okay. Jesus made that clear. He did the, hey, bring me your husband thing when they were talking about water. That wasn't fair. That was almost a low blow. But there's a reason he did it. First of all, not about the reason yet, but this woman has been ostracized as an adulteress. She's got a bad reputation. This is the part I want to really dig in on right now. Bad reputation, right? That's what we have been told. I see now, I don't see that. I see more hope. In fact, what's scary is churchianity has interpreted this story as the woman is a sinner. The truth is, sin is not mentioned at all. Not there. The story is not about forgiveness of a sinful woman. So if it was, Jesus would have said something like he did to the woman caught in adultery. Go and sin no more. He told a bunch of people, go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. He did not say that to this woman. It means there's something going on that we are unaware of and we have jumped to a judgmental conclusion which none of us ever do with each other. We have just done it to a woman. Let this be a lesson to us all. The absence of sin from this text suggests the story is not about sin. I beg to say it's about salvation. Much better. Much more hope. It was also not uncommon for women to be married several times. Women, women were usually married when they're 15 years old or so, so they might go through a couple husbands. However, this five-time thing, that was really unusual. 
just so you know, that was not common. And the fact that she was living with somebody who was not her husband, our Western world in the last couple hundred years would go, oh, it's terrible. That was exactly how things were. There were ways, that, there were reasons people couldn't get married. There were laws in place. Like I got a whole thing. You, Google it yourself for this one because I, I know I'm not going to have enough time to get through this if I get into all the details. But there were rules for Roman law. There was Jewish law. There was provision for, for being together. They could not afford a wedding, let's say. They couldn't afford a dowry, so they lived together, which today we call it what? Common law. Okay? Good question. Good question thing to look up. Again, look this up yourself. <clears throat> the woman's marital status may be unusual. She seems to have been particularly unlucky with respect to her husband's, how many she's had. But her marital history, however, does not make her a sinner. That's us projecting that into the story. That's way too much sin consciousness. We're to be Christ conscious, not sin conscious. And when we project that into the text of Christ consciousness, now we can start to see some good news. So why does Jesus bring up her marital status? Like a quick left blind side? I have a funny feeling the answer is from John 1 uh, verse 47 to 49, where Nathaniel uh, meets Jesus, and Jesus says, I saw you sitting under the fig tree. Do you remember that story? What's the first response from Nathaniel? <gasps> you must be a prophet. Jesus uses this opportunity to reveal something about himself because that five thing, that's pretty specific. It requires divine knowledge. And I believe his heavenly father revealed it to him so that he would know that when he spoke to her. It was about the salvation that's about to come. And then Jesus, and by the way, as, as soon as the husband thing chat, do you realize it was really short? Now, I grew up believing that when she switched topics, she's deflecting. She's, I'm not going to talk about that. <laughs> Let's move on to some other stuff. For her, it wasn't as much of an issue as you think. She was so spiritually hungry. She was in a deep theological discussion. A woman deeply understanding all the theological things, especially knowing about Messiah, having this dialogue with a Jew which you don't do. Man, this, this girl's on fire. Sin is not on her mind. But rather, this is revealing her hunger for spiritual truth, not to try and deflect. I find that perspective healthier for me. You don't have to agree with me. It's fine. But the way it's unfolding, I'm thinking, okay, women have been given a bad rap throughout the entire scriptures. Most of it's written by men, so there's a reason. There's far more grace there. That's why I love the fact that Jesus reached out to so many women to reach in and redeem, bring them back to equality. Reach in and say, you are my beloved. He acts in pure love towards this woman. 
Then he tells her the place of worship, it's not the issue. Because she's been spending her whole life arguing of whether her tribe is right and the other group's wrong. And Jesus dismantles it and says, the time has come and is now here. We worship in spirit and truth. Your location is irrelevant. It's big. Something else I didn't catch either was the Jacob's well part. Did you catch that? I kind of tried to emphasize Jacob and Joseph in the beginning. There's a potential bridge here. The bridge of the location was Jacob's well and Joseph's bones are uh, buried nearby, potentially witnessing what is going on, a silent witness. And here Joseph spent many, many, many years misunderstood, going through much pain, much heartache in order to bring salvation to Egypt. Do you remember that? Samaritan woman, what if she has had a really hard life? We don't know the crisis that has gone in her head. We don't know if she was depressed or dealing with depression at the time. Depression is not a, a new thing. It's been around since the creation of, of all the emotional stress we have. It's not new. What if, through all of her trouble, at this time and place, she becomes the person, the conduit, who brings the gospel to Samaria? Right there at Jacob's well. Right at the holy site. Right where they thought they were right. So God even goes to the place where they think they're right. Whether they're right or not is irrelevant. He goes there to meet them where they're at and points them to him. Not about right and wrong. It's beautiful. And this sixth hour thing, you see, we've used the time of day as the slap in the face that, oh, she was an adulterous and shamed woman because only the shamed ones come out where you know, nobody's around. Right? We've been told that. I preached it. <sighs> Preaching shame is wrong. Just so you know. That's another sermon. This woman, we don't know. And by the way, the sixth hour would have been what? 12 o'clock? Okay. Is that really the hottest time of day? No. Go sit in the sun at 3 o'clock. It's much, much hotter then. And we're also not told what time of year it is. What season? Do you think seasons matter? You bet you it matters. We don't know. So why do we project that? And I think it's because of sin consciousness again. Just regurgitating somebody else's story. Is it possible we're making too much out of what time she's going to draw water at an unusual time. Don't you do unusual things at unusual times? Who has a burger at 11.30 at night? Like, really? Exactly. It's unusual, but yeah. Ain't normal, but, you know, or... I'm just saying, why are we projecting that into the story? What if she's helping somebody else and getting water for them? We don't know any of that, so can't use that argument. In fact, just for fun, Exodus chapter 
2, verses 15 to 19. You can look it up online later. The women of Median are also out getting water at the same time. It's not unusual. Hmm. Folks, the woman at the well was spiritually hungry and lastly, probably the best left hook. Tell me if I get it all, Lorinda, because this is fun. How could a despised, shamed woman with no respect who has to hide herself, how can she go back to a village to speak as a nutcase and actually be heard? Not happening. She had to have had some respect. And the fact she was asking the questions she was asking, the depth of the conversation tells you she was a highly intelligent woman, well-grounded in the scriptures. And well-grounded individuals in the scriptures were respected. So when she came to speak, they immediately believed her because she had already had credibility. And they came instantly. And to knock it all off, Jesus was asked to stay for two days. You don't do that in Samaria as a Jew. I'm sure the disciples felt very uncomfortable. Being in a place they're not supposed to be, that they usually take an extra couple days to go around. But no, they're there. They're seeing the gospel going to people they're not used to. There are people all around you and me They don't even know the hunger that's in them, but a conversation with you and who knows how God will turn the light bulb on. Wait for it. Don't help the Holy Spirit out, by the way. Don't try to have all these conversations just to have an agenda of preaching the gospel. How about get to know them and have an authentic relationship so trust is built so when you do speak, they trust you, just like the woman was trusted. There are people all around you and I that need to experience the true Father to see the true God the Father through the Son and recognize that Jesus and the Father are the same so that when they encounter God, it's going to be a true, authentic encounter. And I'll tell you, the response cannot be controlled. You can't make a little list of here's how to respond to God. Oh, okay, I got to, okay, kneel, got to pray. Dear Father in heaven, hallowed be, what? It doesn't work like that. This guy told me everything I ever did. Ooh, let's go see. (laughs) That's what happened here. There isn't a rule book for sharing faith. How about let the faith that is already in you, which was a gift to you, the faith of Christ, let that manifest itself through you and let the Holy Spirit, Spirit figure out what that will actually look like in your life. And don't look at your neighbor because they're a different personality. This is the story of a gospel. And God sending Jesus to Samaria on purpose for that woman. You matter too. What if you've misread your own life? Misjudged who you think you are when maybe you don't know who you are because you've been told you're no good. You're nothing. You're a sinner. You keep screwing up. That is not the
the gospel. The gospel is you are loved and Jesus came to die for you, to prove it, and you are in him. You are lovable. God even likes you. How weird's that? This is what our world needs to see. Good news. No shame. I don't remember Jesus going and pointing out all kinds of sin to people as the motivation to get their attention. He loved. They revealed their own and said, well, okay, stop it. <laughs> really? Hmm. Maybe we should do the same, not judge each other. See each other as loved by God. First of all, if you don't believe you're loved, you can't love others properly. But when you do know you are loved, that love will then become love to others authentically without ulterior motives. May the story of the Samaritan woman, the woman at the well, never sit well with you the same way. No pun intended. Let's pray. You just got that. (laughs) Heavenly Father, I pray that you show us even more stories that we've misread or ones you can give us a more hope-filled perspective on. Open our eyes to see because each of these stories is to point to you. May we see you and your love in all that we say and do and read and explore and study. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.